Greetings to all those of you who are great, gathered this morning with us to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. I invite you to turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. I should note, I just noticed this discrepancy. didn't occur to me the first service. The sermon title was meant to be a question. Will he spare us? Uh, as it stands now, you get the conclusion, yes, he will. I, 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 meant, I meant it for, to be a little bit more dramatic. What will he do? Well, why spare? There it is. Uh, we're all working together, as you can see. Uh, turn to Jonah chapter 3. There it is. Will he spare us? All right, Jonah chapter 3. Let's hear God's word together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word preached, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through, published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that you are light and there is no darkness in you. You are good through and through. All your ways are righteous and good and pure. We confess that you hate evil and love righteousness. And Father, we ask that we, your children, would increasingly reflect your character. Help us to hate sin. Help us to hate wickedness. Help us to love what is good and right and acceptable in your eyes. Let our lives increasingly be characterized by the joy and purity of submission to your holy will. And Father, as we acknowledge that you hate what is evil and love what is good, we pray for the Supreme Court justices, Lord, uh, that you would give them the resolve that they need to strike down a wicked law, that righteousness may prevail, and that uh, the, the innocent, Lord, would be protected. Uh, Father, bless our nation, and bless us this morning as we gather around your word. Feed us with your truth, and, and use it to sanctify us, making us more like Jesus. Amen. Uh, so a few years ago when I taught English, I would inevitably begin the semester uh, by going through the syllabus. And I would say to the students in my class, uh, all assignments are due the day it says on the syllabus, and if it's not submitted on that day, it's late and it's not accepted. That's the rule. You have to fill out the syllabus, you have to sign the syllabus, give it back. We agree. This is, the, this is how things will operate. That's the law uh, written in, you know, black and white. 
Uh, so I'd get that at the beginning of the semester. And of course, inevitably, over the course of the semester, uh, there would be a steady stream of students who would come to me and say, hey, can I get an extension? Uh, I, I was busy. I didn't plan my time well. Uh, there's always a reason, but can I get an extension? And of course, I was always faced with a dilemma. Uh, does mercy triumph over justice, and do I show leniency, or do I enforce what I said and we agreed on at the beginning of the semester? That was always the tension. Now, I'm not going to tell you what I did, characteristically. I'll let you guess. But uh, the point is that that dilemma is one we often encounter in life. Will we insist on the strict demands of the letter of the law, or will we show mercy? Uh, that's the tension that we see in this passage, in fact. It's a tension between God's, the demands of God's justice and the, the mercy of God's character. And we'll see how that tension is displayed and ultimately resolved. But let's remember, before we jump into chapter 3, the context here. The book of Jonah begins with a grave act of disobedience on the part of the prophet of the Lord. God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, and he says no. He goes on his own way. And then we see the trouble that Jonah goes through until he finally gets to chapter 3, verse 1. Really, the book should have started chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord says to Jonah, go, and Jonah goes. The first two chapters are God dealing with Jonah's refusal to go. But here we are at last. The prophet is on his way to Nineveh as he was always supposed to be. Uh, this morning, we will look at four things as we examine this passage. First, we will consider... The power of Jonah's preaching. The power of Jonah's preaching. Second, we will consider the content of Jonah's preaching. The content of Jonah's preaching. Third, Nineveh's response to Jonah's preaching. Nineveh's response to Jonah's preaching. And fourth, God's merciful response to the Ninevites. God's merciful response to the Ninevites. So first we see the power of the word of the Lord. The word of God comes to his prophet Jonah a second time. By the way, the mercy of God to Jonah is evident not simply in the fact that he was rescued in chapter 2, despite his having sinned, but it's evident also in the fact that he is recommissioned for this task. It is a mercy to be pardoned of your sins, but also to be given grace to uh, continue to serve the Lord after you've blown it. Uh, we think of Peter, for instance, at the end of John's Gospel, John uh, 21, where Peter has blown it. He's denied the Lord three times. And yet the Lord, in his kindness and mercy, uh, reinstates Peter and allows him to continue to be an apostle and a herald of the truth. So Jonah is given a second chance. Uh, take the word to Nineveh, and this time he goes. He goes, we are told, to that great city, an exceedingly great city. Uh, that The emphasis of Nineveh, this great city among the Assyrians is emphasized repeatedly. It is great at all kinds of levels. It has an enormous population, 120,000 people. Uh, it apparently, it sprawls over a huge space geographically in terms of location. It takes three days uh, to go through the breadth of the city. That could be hyperbolic, right? could be slightly overstated. The point is it's huge nonetheless. Um, and it's, uh, it's prominent in terms of its militaristic prowess. It's cultural and artistic achievement. It is a great city. But despite being a great city, it's also a deeply wicked city, characterized by the oppression of the weak, by the powerful, uh, characterized by injustice, 
Uh, and therefore, God's judgment, as we'll see momentarily, stands against Nineveh. Uh, what we need to recognize is that God doesn't just deal with us as individuals. He also deals with nations and cities. And where a society tolerates wickedness, doesn't punish evil, indeed encourages evil, and tramples on the right of the weak, that society is in danger of the judgment of God. Grant, great empires stand and fall by the, their willingness to punish evil and promote what is good. And where wickedness seeps in and there is no longer any justice, there is the danger and threat of judgment. As believers, we need to be concerned, obviously, about living rightly in our personal lives and pleasing God, living for his glory. We need to be concerned that the church is living in obedience to Jesus Christ and honoring him and walking in righteousness. But we should also be concerned about our society, that we have wise leaders and just laws and the wicked are punished and the righteous are blessed god cares about these things and so should we we should in one way or another depending on our gifting and opportunity uh promote the righteousness of our society not least in our present context by praying for our supreme court justices that the resolve to strike down what is a wicked law roe v wade these things should matter to us. We should be bringing social injustices and wickedness before the Lord and petitioning him. So Jonah goes to this great but wicked city, and this is the moment we've all been waiting for. Two and a half chapters we've been waiting for the prophet of God to preach. And here's the message, verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Boom. And then there is massive repentance from the highest uh, strata of society to the lowest, from the king to the poor, everybody repents. Now, it's somewhat striking, it seems to me, that we've been waiting all this time for the preaching to happen. And when it comes, it's like seven words, right? Now, admittedly, the historical preaching of Jonah would have been much longer, right? We get a, a very uh, brief summary that's recorded here. Uh, but nevertheless, it strikes you as a little anticlimactic, the whole, this whole time, Jonah has been going towards Nineveh. What is he going to say? What is he going to say? Judgment's coming, 40 days. It's simple. It's unadorned. And you would not expect the response that it gets, would you? Verse 5. Judgment is coming. And instead of responding with ridicule or just ignoring Jonah, the whole city puts on a fast, and they're all crying out to God together from the king to the lowest member of that society. You look at the preaching and how simple it is, unadorned, the judgment is coming, and then you look at the response, and it seems like the response is all out of proportion to the message. What's going on? How does this happen? Well, we need to recognize that when Jonah speaks, he doesn't simply communicate his words. He's not engaged in his own opinions about society. He's not offering uh, a cultural commentary from his vantage point. When Jonah speaks, he speaks the words of the Lord. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. So when Jonah speaks, God speaks. And when God speaks, things happen. The world is shaken. Society is shaken. People are convicted. They repent. We confess rightly that the word of the Lord is true and utterly reliable. Praise God. But the word of God is also powerful. It accomplishes his purposes in dramatic ways. The classic statement of this truth in Scripture is Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. 
Isaiah writes, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word will accomplish the purposes of God. It has power. Just as in Genesis 1, God says, let there be light, and there is light. When his word goes out into the world, it produces the result that he intends. We, we see that the word of the Lord convicts people of their guilt and sin. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. This is, the context here is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. He proclaims Christ who died and rose again. And the people respond, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The word of the Lord convicts and pricks our conscience. And the word of the Lord saves. Paul tells us that the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ is God's power for the salvation of sinners. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Where has God put his power for raising the spiritually dead to life? He has put it in his word. He has put it in the gospel. Therefore, we should have confidence in the word of God. It's not our eloquence or skill or effectiveness that finally uh, converts anyone. It is God's power operating through his word. That's where our confidence should be. There's a wonderful illustration of this from uh, R.C. Sproul's life. Now, many of you probably know R.C. Sproul, a uh, deceased theologian, had a knack for communicating complex truths clearly. And um, at one point, he describes how he was converted. And this is his account of his conversion in college. My roommate and I decided to head out to, to town to hit some of the bars. We come to the parking lot, and I realized I was out of cigarettes. So I went back into the dorm and went to the cigarette machine. You can still remember it was 25 cents for a pack of Luckies. And I got my Luckies and turned around and saw the captain of the football team sitting at a table. And he spoke to me and to my roommate and invited us to come over and chat. And we did. And this was the first person I ever met in my life that talked about Christ as a reality. I'd never heard anything like it. And I was just absorbed, sat there for two or three hours, and he was talking. He didn't give a traditional evangelism talk to me. He just kept talking to me about the wisdom of the word of God. And he quoted Ecclesiastes 11.3. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. I just feel certain that I'm the only person in church history that was converted by that verse. God just took that verse and struck my soul with it. He goes on to say that he saw himself like that tree just sitting there dead and lifeless. How did it happen? There's a captain of the football team quoting Ecclesiastes. But of course, there is more going on than just the captain of the football team speaking. God himself is speaking through his word and imparting life. That's our confidence. And if we believe that the word of God is that powerful, then you know what we should do? We should share it. The way that you know you really believe in the power of God's word is by the fact that you're willing to talk to people about Jesus. That's how you demonstrate that you believe God's word is powerful. And not just people who don't know Jesus, but the people around you. God's word is his means of transforming even the people in the church, even the people in your family. So we should share God's powerful word with others consistently. 
confident that, again, it's not our eloquence or wisdom that gets the job done. It is his mighty power operating through his word. In the first century, Christianity spread like wildfire. And there was a place for, you know, learned preaching and teaching. There was a place for that. But mainly it seems to have spread as ordinary Christians imperfectly share the good news about Jesus Christ with others. The pagan Celsus describes it this way. He's talking about the early Christians. They get a hold of any who are as ignorant as themselves and say, we know how men ought to live. If your children do as we say, you will be happy yourselves and make your home happy too. The learned pagan is, it isn't like the, the believers who would corner people and start to tell them about Jesus. And through their humble efforts, many came to know the Lord. We display a confidence in the power of God's word when we share it with others. That's the first thing we see, power of the word of the Lord. Second thing we see is the content of Jonah's message. It's a message of judgment. Verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In 40 days this city will be a smoking crater. Now we need to recognize that the judgment that Jonah predicts is completely just. God's judgment is never arbitrary. It's not like God flips a coin and goes, who do I judge today? Well, Nineveh. Right? It's not arbitrary. The judgment of God is perfectly just. It is in perfect harmony with the facts. So, for example, at the very beginning of the book, we are told in verse 2, when God reveals himself to Jonah, Nineveh, that great city, go to it, and call out against it, for evil has, their evil has come up before me. God is, as it were, looking at Nineveh, seeing the oppression of the weak by the strong, hearing the cry of victims. This is a cruel and barbaric people. And they weren't just cruel, apparently, to outsiders. They were cruel even to the people in their midst. And God says, the time has come for me to right wrongs and pour out my judgment on Nineveh. Verse 8 also indicates that it's a wicked city. The king says, let everyone turn from his evil way, implying that there is an evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands. Again, very, you get the impression this is a violent, barbaric society. And it has reached a point where God is no longer going to stand by anymore. His judgment will fall, and his judgment is exactly just. He will give them no more or no less than they deserve. This is part of God's glory in Scripture. He doesn't see violence and theft and human misery and victimization and then look the other way. God is a God who hates evil and he punishes it to the uttermost. There is not one drop of evil that God will not finally punish. And his judgment is perfectly just. As Romans 2 verses 5 through 6 reminds us, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. God doesn't give a person more or less than what they deserve. His judgment is just. And honestly, if we look at our hearts, I think all of us would say, we want wickedness to be punished. We want the scales of justice to be balanced. When you uh, turn on your laptop and you read about the latest instance of senseless, random violence, someone picks up their gun and shoots up a grocery store or a church or a school or a mall, there's a part of you that goes, how long, O oh Lord? Am I right? This is evil. It ought not to be. This person deserves judgment. And you don't actually have to be a Christian to feel that way. 
That's a pretty universal human response. This is wrong, and God, you need to do something about it. At that moment, we catch something of a glimpse of God's holy hatred of evil. That is a right response. Here's the thing, though. If you're a secular, non-religious person, you really don't have a good reason to respond that way. Assuming you believe in God at all, non-religious people in our society, generally speaking, don't believe in a God of judgment and justice. If they believe in a God at all, it's a God who unconditionally accepts everyone, loves everyone, and there is no judgment or justice. And so that, that moment of moral indignation is unwarranted. God himself looks at evil and tolerates it, and so should you. And of course, that's a conception of God that we should recoil at. It's not the biblical conception at all. What a terrible thing to think that all the victims that have lived in the history of the world for centuries and millennia who have cried out to God in heaven for justice, according to the modern view, they won't get it. It's not a God worth worshiping. The, the conception of God that many people in our society have doesn't account for this deep moral indignation that we have. But the Christian view does. According to Scripture, this longing for justice, for wrongs to be righted, won't be finally frustrated. It will be satisfied by God Almighty who punishes sin perfectly and completely. God won't look the other way. He hears the cry of victims and he will punish their oppressors. And not one wrong will finally be unpunished. Far from being something that we should apologize for, this is something to adore God for. This is part of his glory and his greatness. He doesn't look the other way, and he punishes wickedness. Intriguingly, at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, when we get a glimpse of the future, the people of God are adoring God because he has judged wicked human society. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute, which is here a metaphor for human society in opposition to God, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Revelation 19, 1 through 3. The Bible is not apologetic about the fact that God hates sin and punishes it. It celebrates that fact. It is right and good that he should punish sin. Even, even in all the best stories, is that how they, how they end? Every good story, every fairy tale, the villain gets carted off to prison and everybody who loves peace can enjoy themselves. They get relief from the tyranny of evil men. According to the Bible, that's where human history is going. And so this is good news. We should praise God that he hates evil and judges it. At the same time, if you're in the category not of the innocent, but of the guilty, it's also bad news. It means that his justice is directed not just against everybody else, which frankly is what we really want. God, do justice against all those wicked people out there, failing to see the wickedness within. God is truly just, but he's not just going to give everybody else what they deserve, but also he's going to give you what you deserve. And that should cause us to shudder. So his justice is both good news and bad news if you're guilty. Well, how do the people respond to this message of judgment? We're told in verse 6 that the king of Nineveh gets off of his throne and sits instead 
in ashes. He takes off his royal garments and puts instead sackcloth on himself, which is made of some sort of coarse material that would have been uncomfortable. This is a sign. Indeed, it is a sign. Uh, Make of it what you will. That he's humbling himself before the Lord. It's a way of saying, Lord, your judgment is just. And it's this repentance, this turning from evil goes beyond just him. He makes a proclamation. Verse 7. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. And normally in scripture when people fast, they abstain from just food, not also water. But in such awe are they of God's impending judgment that they abstain not just from food but also water. They are humbling themselves before the Lord. And not only that, the king says, uh, let everyone, ter- let, uh, I'm looking at the verse just before. Here we are. Let man and beast co- be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. He's asking for a prayer meeting. Everybody in Nineveh needs to humble themselves before the Lord with fasting and they need to cry out to the Lord for mercy. God, we are sinners. We need you. Now notice what they're not doing. Pagans typically haggle with their gods. God, if you help us in this particular strait, we will give you 5,000 bulls. Notice that that's not what they're doing. They're saying, Lord, we're out of options. Help. Like we're casting ourselves on your mercy. That's all we have going for us. And along with that casting of themselves on God's grace... We're told, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Stop doing evil. Stop being violent. Turn again from your unrighteousness and do that which is right. In scripture, faith and repentance always go together. Trusting in God to rescue you from evil always involves turning from a life of rebellion to a life of submission. That's what repentance is. A turning from evil back to God to do good. Now, quick quick parenthesis here. We should note that this moment of citywide repentance probably falls short of complete turning to God as their one true God. The fact that the word Lord is not used, Yahweh, Lord, all caps, is a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, Uh, is an indication, the fact that only the generic name is used, is an indication of the fact that they've probably not yet turned back to the Lord completely, as the pagan mariners in chapter 1 do. Uh, So this this falls short of complete repentance. They they also don't offer worship and sacrifices the way Jonah and the mariners do after they're rescued. So the indication is that this is not a complete turning to the Lord. Nevertheless, it is a real turning from wickedness that God, as we will see, honors. But the crucial thing I want you to see is that they are trusting in the Lord to save them, but this trust is accompanied by a turning from evil and a submission to God. Those two things in scripture always go together. Faith and repentance are opposite sides of the same coin. Those who rely on Jesus Christ to save them from the judgment of God and their sins are also those who no longer want to live in sin and want increasingly to submit to their king. Another way to say it is, one way to look at it is, a person who truly looks to Jesus as their savior will also submit to Jesus as their king. Those two things will not be separated. In scripture, they are one thing. 
Saying to Jesus, Lord, save me, also involves putting Jesus at the center of your life and saying, I want to submit everything to you, Lord. Those always go together in Scripture. Now, it is the case that in terms of our experience, people want to separate those two things, don't they? Uh, They want to separate faith and repentance. And the reason they want to do that is they want God's benefits without any of the commitment of following him and acknowledging him as their king. This often happens when a person's life begins to spiral out of control. Their marriage is falling apart, it's holding on by a thread. Their kids are wild all over the place. Their household is in disarray. Their business is falling apart. Their life is not going well. And so they start coming to church. They start seeking God. They start volunteering. And it looks like they're actually seeking God. But actually what they're seeking is domestic harmony and financial success. And they're using God to get that. They don't want God. They want what God can give them. We see this in James chapter 4, verse 3, where he says, You ask, so these are people who are praying to God, at one level seeking God. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. He's saying you're essentially coming to God in prayer and saying, God, help me to get the thing that I really love, which is not you, by the way. Essentially, you're saying, God, help me to use you so I can get the thing that I really love. That's what uh, James calls them adulterous people. The sign that you are not doing that, but that Jesus is indeed at the center of your life, is that you repent. You turn from evil where you see it, and you want his will to be done, not not just some narrow snippet of your life, but comprehensively in everything. Search your heart this morning. Do you want God, or do you want the benefits that God can give you? What are you really seeking after? If you want to put God in his own little box in your life, And say, God, you could have this part of my life, but this wide open space over here, this belongs to me. If your obedience is compartmentalized, then you're actually not repenting. Repentance is unconditional surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ over every aspect of life. That's the response. They cast themselves on God's mercy and turn from evil. What's God's response to them? This is the crucial thing, right? But part of the drama of this whole episode is, what will God do? Uh, And intriguingly, if you look at verse 9, they're not sure. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And so the question is building up for the Ninevites and for the reader, what kind of God is he? Is he going to press the demands of justice to the uttermost limit and there is no hope? Or somehow... Will mercy triumph over justice? What kind of God is God? That's the question. Is he the kind of God who will relent from his fierce anger against sinners and have mercy on the undeserving? Or is he a God who will utterly wipe them out? What kind of God is God? And we get an answer in verse 10 in his response. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. He looks at this barbaric, cruel people whose repentance fell short of what it ought to have been. And nevertheless, as they call upon the Lord, he says, you know what? Mercy will triumph over justice. I will spare them. Now, we should be clear as we look at verse 10 that God doesn't change his mind. That would be a misreading of verse 10. 
God is omniscient. He knows everything. If he changed his mind, that would imply that he is uh, making a better decision than the one he made first, which would imply that he can, that he doesn't make perfect decisions, that he doesn't know everything. Uh, we shouldn't say that. Uh, what we see here is not God changing his mind, but God acting differently in response to a different situation. The situation has changed. Uh, if God had said, I'm going to destroy you, Ninevites don't change, and then he doesn't destroy them, okay, that would be God changing his mind. But that's not what happens. I will destroy you, contrition, repentance, have mercy on us, and then God has mercy on them. But the crucial thing is that as, as God's judgment burns against these Assyrians, these cruel people, and they say, Lord, we don't have options, have mercy, God is the kind of God who says, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spare you, I'm gonna set aside my judgment. That's, a, that's at the heart of the book of Jonah, and it's stated by Jonah explicitly in chapter four, verse two, where he says, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's the kind of God he is. We saw in chapter one, you have these pagan mariners who have no claim on the God of Israel. Nevertheless, approaching the God of Israel and saying, Lord, have mercy, save us from the storm. And God rescues them. They have no claim on God, but God is good and he rescues them. We saw how Jonah deserved to die because of his disobedience, but he cries out to the Lord, Lord, have mercy on me. And God has mercy on Jonah and brings him safely out of the sea. And these Ninevites, cruel, barbaric though they are, they say, Lord, have mercy. And the Lord has mercy. However far down you have gone, the grace and mercy of God goes deeper still. It's the message of Jonah. No matter how far you have fled or how much you have rebelled, God is a compassionate and gracious God who is willing to accept you where you are, who is willing to pardon your sins and bring you into his family. That's the kind of God he is. And that means there's hope for us. As we read Jonah, we shouldn't put ourselves in a different category from the uh, pagan mariners, from Jonah, and from the Ninevites. They were guilty, but I'm innocent. We need to see that we're in the same boat as all of these other people. We too have rebelled against God and are under his judgment. And our only hope is that God is the kind of God who freely pardons sinners. And the message of Jonah is that he does. Mercy triumphs over judgment. But this creates a predicament, doesn't it? This is, I talked about attention earlier. I hope you can see it a little bit. On the one hand, God punishes every single sin. His justice demands it, and that's good. On the other hand, he's merciful to sinners. He lets them go on their way without being judged. How does the Bible resolve that tension? You see it in several places in the Old Testament. And, and you ought to ask, how does this work? God punishes the wicked, but he also lets them off the hook. How can that happen? Isaiah tells us. Isaiah 54, 5 says, in speaking of Christ, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The sinless spotless son of God freely offered his life in our place and at the cross Jesus endured the agony 
that the just demands of God for the punishment of our sins require. We are allowed to go free because Jesus endured the horror of the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. He is forsaken not because of any sin in him, but because of the sins that we've committed. At the cross, the demands of the justice of God are completely satisfied. In the final analysis, God's justice will be satisfied in one of two ways. Either Jesus will have taken upon himself the penalty for your sins, or you will receive the judgment of God upon your sins that you deserve if you don't trust in his son Jesus. Those are the only two options that human beings have. And so this morning, if you are not relying on Jesus as your savior to rescue you from the judgment of God, this passage tells you God is a forgiving God. Come to him, rest in him, rest in his son Jesus for the pardon of your sins. And if you have, if you've passed from the dark shadow of God's judgment and have come into the bright sunlight of his favor and approval through Jesus, then be glad. Then be thankful. Praise the Lord and respond with a life of grateful obedience to the God who doesn't wipe out rebels, but graciously pardons them. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that even as your children, we so often have a picture of you in our hearts and minds as severe, as ready to punish us at the first uh, moment's notice. Forgive us for lacking a profound recognition of how gracious, patient, and kind you are. We ask that your wonderful, beautiful, gentle character would increasingly burrow deep in our hearts and cause us to experience the rest and relief of relying upon you and not ourselves. Thank you, Father, for loving us and pardoning us and rescuing us through your son, Jesus, from the judgment we deserve. Amen.